So we are in a series in Acts, the book of Acts. And so if you would, uh, just go ahead and turn in your Bible to uh, Acts chapter 3. And as you turn there, um, we're going to go ahead and let you know that if, you, if you're if you new to us today and you walk in, it's always nice to know where you're going. Uh, we typically walk through a book of the Bible. If we started Acts uh, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Shale ch- covered chapter 1 and 2. And so I'll be picking up on 3. And we're going to walk through verse by verse. And so how we teach is almost like conversational teaching. So uh, when I get up here, there's a lot of reliance on the Holy Spirit and a lot of some study. You know, and I um, always let you know how much room for there is for the Holy Spirit. I don't have notes up here. It's just always scripture that I blow up, size 18 font that I can read. So there's been people have joked around and said and had fun with me to say, you know, the second service is different than the first service, you know, and it's true. You'll different jokes, different whatever, because like you just you just roll with how the Holy Spirit's leading. It's just what happens when you when you're up here with just scripture in front of you. But what's neat is sometimes there are things that just jump out. Some things that get us at the 9 a.m. service that grab us and hold on to who you know what we have is doesn't really fly at the 1030 service. So it's not like even the nine o'clock as we joke around about, oh, it's a good practice run. You know, to 1030, I can't wait to deliver. There are times I get up at 1030 and I can't recall a thing that I was able to share at nine o'clock. So the Holy Spirit is real, isn't he? And um, and so, you know, we think about when we open up as a, as a we're a non-denominational church. I mean, we have people that come in here from different backgrounds. There are people that come in from um, Baptist backgrounds, Methodist, Presbyterian. There are people that uh, come in as Reformed. There are people that come in from Charismatic background. There are people that come in, and this is which is why when we lay out who we are as a foundational approach to Creekside, Pastor Jeff does a great job of explaining this is what we believe in. There are going to be some areas that we could kick back and in good spirits say, nah, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about this. But there are certain fundamental truths that we hold on to. And those truths are self-evident in our church bylaws and in the statement of faith that we believe as as a church. The Holy Spirit would be one of those things that we definitely believe in. It can be taught and received differently. And so before we jump in, let me pray for me. Let me do that. And we'll just get moving in this. Lord Jesus, just give me the right words and let the words be received in a way that you would have them received. Please remove any distraction that I would give in any way. Let me be an open vessel, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me give an example about the Holy Spirit. There is a a Holy Spirit that is, is real, that is alive, now as it ever has been. It's hard to imagine that when we read some of these stories. We're about to read some stories, and we're about to see some things that make us think, well, I haven't seen him move in that kind of way. But the reality is he does. Somebody asked me the other day, if you were to go back to any period of history of time, what would it be? Pick a chunk of history, go back into it, and live it as it was, what would it be? And I suppose, I guess I had all kind of questions. Well, it depends. Would I, would I uh, have money? That'd be nice. Yeah, you know, would I... I mean, would I have to carry a musket because I'd probably go back to certain times in which we were at war? Would I be with a rifle? And, you know, I mean, I want to know specifics if you're asking me this question. 
well, just pick anything, live what you want to live. And I was thinking, wow, you know, the cars of the 1950s, those are cool, right? What would it be like go to a soda fountain place or something? I don't know. You watch these movies, just look so innocent and pure. World War II, what was it like being here when people were bonding together in a common fight? When people were rationing items and coming together as a country, what would that be like? What would it be like to be in the Depression when everybody leaned on each other and everybody needed each other because you had to, to survive? And so I began to think later, I wonder what period of history. Then I realized something. The story that we are talking about unfolding today is just after Jesus had resurrected, calls his 12 men aside, picks the 12 to replace Judas and says to them, I'm going to send you to all across this globe to start a church. These 12 men, had you told them, you had you told them even a few months before, that some of you are going to go to different continents. As a matter of fact, they would go to three total continents. Uh, matter of fact, they go to three continents to, to, to witness. You're going to be given power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be given healing powers. You're going to be given powers to be able to reach into the souls of men and teach them things they've never seen. You're going to be able to heal people with incredible um, power. They would have never believed it. Well, there's no reason they should have believed it because they had never seen anything up to that point like it. And so when Jesus had resurrected, he said, I am going to leave for you somebody greater than I am. I'm going to leave with you the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is going to equip you and guide you and teach you in all your ways. Now, here's where I want to be really, really clear in a loving heart. There are different aspects and approach to the Holy Spirit. And I believe there are far end spectrums that can be damaging to each other. I was probably in one of those far end spectrums at a certain point in life. I was saved and I was raised pretty much raised as a Christian from 23 years old in a very conservative denomination where the minute you start to mention the Holy Spirit, there was a kind of a, uh oh, we're losing control. You know, I mean, you know what those Holy Spirit ringers are like. They're going to start bringing tambourines and flags in here if we're not careful. I mean, this is where we were like, oh, you'd be very careful. And then you have people that still view. There are individuals who can have the healing powers that, that the, the, the apostles had. I want to be clear in what I believe and how I'm teaching, where I'm coming from. I believe I have learned a lot in understanding God can do anything, especially the power of the Holy Spirit can do amazing things, still is in the healing business, but I think it's done through his timing, his discernment, and, his, and what get, brings him glory, and is asked for in fervent prayer. I just truly do believe that. I do not believe an individual would, if somebody would walk in here and say, hey, I have the, I have the power to heal. I want to go see somebody. I, no, you're not going to get very far from with me because I don't believe you have that gift. But I do believe, without a shadow of a doubt, the Holy Spirit is as alive now as he ever was. So think about this. The power of the Holy Spirit that was described and told 2,000 years ago to say this. Jesus said, I'm going to leave for you the Holy Spirit. You 12 are going to start a church. You were going to start a church, and you were going to break the back of religion as you know it. And when you do, understand, you will do so until I come back. Do you know those marching orders were given 2,000 years ago, and you and I, this is where I get chills, you and I are in those ranks. You and I are in the same number of people that have been told, go and minister, go and preach, go and, and fix things, go and heal people of their of of what they're broken of, go and, and take what I have and take it into this world. 
In every step you take, you will reach a battle. Now, we talk about persecution, and there's several types of persecution that come up to mind. Here it is. Number one, I think of the persecuted church now. The places where, where church is, is experiencing the greatest amount of persecution right now is the place where is the greatest church growth ever. We've mentioned to you about Iran, and you see what happens in Iran. That's one of the most persecuted regions. It is the fastest growing church. Over 1 million believers by conservative estimate with not one leader, not one associate associated, uh, director, not one lead pastor. The largest, fastest growing church in the world is being driven by no hierarchy or infrastructure of mankind, which means it's being driven by one thing, and that is the Holy Spirit. You look at all the other countries in which you've seen the Holy Spirit move. It's amazing. And you look to see how 12 ordinary men were commissioned to go out and do something, and they start moving into these villages and these cities and these towns, and they begin talking about Jesus. And then what happens? A great persecution falls on them. The persecution that comes in them comes in the form of Roman law. People are getting out of control. And so what happens? They, they come in, and they start re, um, pulling it back. If you, any of you have been to Rome? Some of you been to Rome? You've seen the Colosseum? And there's a big cross in the Colosseum. It's remarkable. It gives you chills. You walk around in this area. There's the Circus Maximus and the Colosseum and these many different forms. And the cross is put there to the persecuted church. Now, our image goes to um, Christians fighting off lions and fighting off lions that were unleashed upon them to, go, to, to kill the Christians. What's amazing, and what I learned in Rome a long time ago, was that the crowds got bored of watching Christians slaughtered by lions. And for one reason, it was interesting. As they knew what their death was going to be, and the word spread out, because the first ones who were thrown in the Colosseum did not know what was going to happen, they began to recognize and know when they were taken to Rome, they were going to be executed. And so they gathered together when they were attacked in these forms, and they would immediately huddle together, and they would start praying. And these Christians would lock arms and pray as the lions devoured one by one as they were praying and giving praise to Christ. The crowds got bored. You had hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians in exile locked away in prisons. Nero didn't know what to do with them. And so he gave the sick command to gather them get together in groups of 10, 20, and up to 40 and 50 at a time, bathe them in lamp oil, and light his gardens with the living bodies of believers. This is the persecution that went on then, and yet the church continued to thrive. Within a few hundred years, Rome would break its back on itself and become a Christian city, uh, a, Christian, uh, a Christian country. Italy would fall, and then elements of the, of the empire would fall. You began to see the Muslim faith move in and attach themselves to who Jesus was because it was a sense of control. Muhammad knew exactly what he was doing by seeing this crazy, out-of-control wildfire of, of, of gospel-centered um, this movement that was moving and laid claim to it, saying he's one of our prophets. You began to see people for political reasons using, but in the entire time, no matter where Christianity spread, whether it's by good means or bad, because there, let's face it, there were some bad methods used in, in the early start of Christianity in what we call the modern era, 11, 1200s, you saw the Holy Spirit do what he wanted to do. He not only does it in mass, but he does it individually. And so this Holy Spirit equipped these 12 men, and you ready for this? Equips us. 2,000 years later, you and I are the class of 2020 of this great fight who are in the midst of one of the most historical things this earth has ever seen and movements to say that we are under 
a great command to spread Christ. So here we are, Acts chapter 3, if you'll look in your Bibles, verse 1. I'm going to stop a few times here, so get ready. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Stop right here. I want you to imagine there's many different gates. Do you remember in our study of Nehemiah, those of you who are here, there were numerous gates. There was the sheep gate. Shepherds would come in. They can only go so far because they smelled. Shepherds would have to smell like their sheep. And so they they weren't allowed in town. Uh, they would hang out at the sheep gate. The dung gate. Dung was brought out. Fisherman's gate. The fish were brought in that gate. The sacrifice gate. The priest would come in that gate. There were different names at different gates where people came in. This gate had one name. All of them had functional names, not this one. Beautiful gate. Why? It was 75 feet tall. The gate was so large, so heavy, it took 20 men to open and close the gate. It was adorned on the outside with solid gold engravings. It was a beautiful gate. And this was a gate that more than likely people enjoyed walking in and out of just because of the sheer beauty. And in this case, I want you to now start getting very visual in your mind. I want you to think very clearly about what's going to happen. This is a gate at the ninth hour of prayer, meaning it's three o'clock in the afternoon, which is receiving a large number of people to worship and pray. People would have gone three times a day in which to pray, men and women. The men are gathering together. They're about to walk under a gigantic porch. We're building a porch at Creekside. It's much bigger than our porch. It's huge. It's a big porch. People gather together there. And so they're, they're gathering together. This man, which by the way, I don't think I picked up till now, this man is being carried and not, he's not like, I imagine in my mind, he's on the ground, but this it says nothing in here. He's, be, he's on the ground. He's being carried as he was every day to this place. The man is begging for money like he always does. And he's saying, hey, uh, please, just can someone give me some money? Can you put, just asking people continuously. This is how he's existed. He's 40 years old. He was lame from birth meaning he was lame in the womb. He came out of the womb as a lame man. This was not a kid who got bullied at school. He didn't go to school. He would not have been allowed in school. This was not a kid who was the runt of Sunday school. He would not have been allowed there. This would have hurt a person that if he would have tried to go inside a church, a synagogue, a temple, would have been told, your sins or your father's sins made you what you are. You're jacked up for that reason. Now get out of here. Meaning you can't even look us in the eye, which is very critical to understand in a minute when Peter and John walk up. Now, keep in mind, Peter, Peter is someone who has not exhibited a great amount of courage except in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cut off Malchus's ear with a sword. Outside of that, Peter was always trying to reason with Jesus. He was the one who would say, Jesus, why are we going to heal on the Sabbath? Why would you have us heal on this day? You know it's what, the, what the religious leaders are going to do. Jesus would look and say, not only are we going to heal on the Sabbath, we're going to go right there to that temple, right outside the door, and we're going to do it right in the footsteps of the religious leaders. Peter was not your most courageous guy. Now, pick up with me in verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms, to receive money. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, 
But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This is Peter and John, who, by the way, were, you know, they're walking up to this temple to pray. There's no indication that they've gone there for this healing. But this moment, this is a man that they walk up to and see, and he looks at them, and they look at him, and they say something profound. Look at me. No, look up here. This man wasn't allowed to look anyone in the eye, culturally. Look at me. I'm identifying with you. I want you to recognize something. You have an ability to be, we are identifying with you. In that gaze, don't miss out on this gaze. Don't miss out too when you see the, the sermon that Peter's about to give here in just a second. These are cliff notes of a really crazy day. What's happening here is, is a lot. And what's happening here is being directed by the Holy Spirit. What's amazing is Jesus, get this, Jesus walked by this lame man. He had to. This guy was brought to this place. Jesus had prayed at this place numerous times. Jesus had gone in and out of this temple. Did Jesus not look at this man and know, yeah, I know exactly what's going to, I know exactly what's coming your way in due time. Jesus did not heal every person he walked across. Jesus would only heal and the Holy Spirit only moves in what fits God's design as we, as we know. It just does, which is why I'm confounded and astonished and in love with the power of prayer. God says this, I have a perfect plan to do exactly what I'm going to do. Satan has a plan. He's going to do everything against it. I have a plan that's going to usurp it, but understand something. I have a plan and you have the ability to pray and ask me for things that you want. And not only does God listen, God still answers prayer. That's an amazing thing. God still has the ability to commune with us in a sense of prayer. So this is what we call a miracle. This man is about to be given the ability to walk. And to me, that's a miracle. Jen, when you had your baby, that's a miracle. Walk into any particular room and I walk in. Jessica, same thing. Get a chance to see baby when it's first born. I look, I'm like, this is a miracle. Who wouldn't say it's a miracle of life? But if you could also say that's the natural order, living things give birth to living things, and that's the natural order. And to me, I would say the overall encompassing fact of a miracle of life is amazing. But the act of life is natural order. Okay. Now I take that to looking at the first time I ever saw a 747. Remember this gigantic plane. I'm standing at the window, looking at the nose of this gigantic aircraft. The pilots are on the second story. You can barely see them, and you're looking at this thing. You get on board. There's five seats in the middle, three over here, three over here. Flight attendants lined up, 500 passengers, 45,000 pounds of luggage. And this anchor weight is going to is about to go in the air. You could call that a miracle. You could look at that and think, there's no way. The, 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 the fact that this plane is as heavy as it is, how is it going to get in the air? But then comes someone with understanding of physics. And they say, no, no, you don't quite understand. With proper lift, with proper thrust, with proper design, and I'm sure James, I'm butchering this as a pilot instructor, right? With all this, it has the ability to go from this weight 
to this flying object that can fly very, very fast and land on a dime. How does that happen? Because natural order supersedes natural order. It is what it does. Let me tell you what a miracle is. A miracle is this. You and I living in a world of natural order of life and death and sickness and disease and loneliness and depression, but interjected with the miracle of God's superpower overwhelming our natural order. That is what a changed life looks like. The same way another realm can come in and pluck something out of its natural design and natural order and say, you are destined for something is a miracle. And this man who's lame from birth, lame outside this place, 40 years old, has never walked on his ankles or feet, all of a sudden given restorative powers is absolutely a miracle. And so Peter and John said, um, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, rise up and walk. Imagine if you and I took that mantra and that motto with us our entire life. That somebody comes up to you and says, you know, um, somebody we don't like at work, somebody we, we barely tolerate in our family, somebody that, that, that treats us wrong. Can you imagine responding with this? I'm right, you're wrong. How far will that get you? Imagine responding with avoiding the person. Sometimes you have to do that. But imagine if you rested in a power that God is real. That you say, you know what? I don't have the ability to fix a problem that you see how to fix it. But what I do have is the power of Christ in me, and it can't. Something can be done. Um, I shared some of this at a prayer meeting there a night we had. I had some younger students ask me questions about times of travel. You've been, you've traveled some places. What have you seen? Why is it you always hear about these stories of spiritual darkness and demons? They love saying the word demons. I think there's a fascination with. It just is. Younger people are like, what's the deal with demons? You know, they're like zombies or something. They just ask these questions. I'm like, well, they're like, what have you seen? And why is it these things always happen in Africa? They happen in India. They happen in South American remote villages. Why? Why is that? Is you've seen it in Italy and rampant place and where you are, Kathy, you as well over there. But why is he in America? You don't see these things. Well, I think we've been supplanted with a, with a powerful nature of understanding this. There is a natural order of the spirit realm. And that is, and if you're new to Christianity or you're not even a Christian, this is when you think I'm a loon and you're okay. I would have thought I was a loon too before I was saved. And there it is. But here, bear with me. There is an order in a spiritual realm that exists. It does. And there is a, um, Satan has been given this term called Prince of the Air. If you ever notice through the amount of confusion that he gives. He can give confusion in dialogue. He can make you think something and me think something. That's the enemy. He can make you see something and me see something differently. That's the enemy. He can pop his head up and rear his head in ways to, to, to make you think you're overwhelmed and outnumbered, make you look at social media and think there are no, there is no one left. I mean, where's the, where's, where's normalcy gone? You start to wonder what kind of world are we living in? How many of us have uttered the words, what is this world going to look like in 50 years? If you don't think that's been uttered for 2000 years, you and I are looking constantly at things that Satan is driving in our minds, in our imagery. So keep in mind, like I was a Baptist most of my life. I never, you know, 
what, what can the Holy Spirit really do? I mean, like, you know, I mean, sure, he's great. The power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of the Holy Spirit. But what does he look like when he moves? And I went to Zimbabwe, and I was in Zimbabwe on a, on a uh, missions opportunity. And I was around International Mission Board missionaries, Southern Baptist missionaries, straight-laced, fully educated Southern Baptist seminaries who are sitting in this particular realm, and they're and one of them says, "Yeah, I was in this village," and I went in. We had no uh, linguistic ability to connect. They couldn't talk to us. And when it came, all of a sudden, this this overwhelming sense to tell tell the story from creation across. We did, and people started crying, and people started getting saved. And the other missionaries started going around and said, "Have hey, same thing happen to me. Same thing happened to me." And you're listening to these stories, and these are people that would have never thought they would they would never trained in seminary to lean entirely on the Holy Spirit to go in and do and, and, and minister. But people saw the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why the spiritual realm is so fascinating because it's so real. Another person asked one time, and again, uh, we were kind of sharing this at the prayer meeting. They're like, what is it? First of all, it's a he. He has a name. It's called a Holy Spirit. What does he look like? I don't know. But the spiritual realm is very real. And one more little blurb on the spiritual realm to kind of give you an understanding. I've mentioned this. There's an Italian philosopher in the Renaissance period who, when there's a lot of scratching the heads going, is God really real? And this Italian philosopher, I can't remember his name, Pepperoni, something like that. He steps out and he, he writes, he writes a, a, a thought and he says, this is, this is the angle I'm taking and it's, it's a very powerful thought. He said, for all of you refuting the thought of a God, I want you to think of this. And again, I'm going to say it. I know you've heard me say it before. Mankind cannot imagine in mass what is not possible. One more time. Mankind cannot imagine in mass what is not possible. Meaning the belief of God has to be real because everybody, every culture has an understanding of it. The same thing with a spiritual realm. If you go to um, look at etchings on, at, on stones outside of where teepees would have been laid, there would be etchings from Native Americans referencing the spiritual realm. The spirit of the sun, the spirit of this, the spirit of that. If you go to Africa and find masks all over the place, even to this day, there's a drive to say, man, there's this spiritual, this darkness that looms in on us, and these are for our protection. Go to Baltic explorers and ask them, and they would, they would give you the same description. You'd walk in early churches, pre-Christ churches, that were given over to warding off evil spirits. South America, all over the place. No one ever gathered all of humanity together and said there's a spiritual realm. Fear it. There was just a knowledge in existence that it was real. And folks, if we didn't have the technology, if we didn't have the progress, if we didn't have the development, if we didn't have the busyness, if we didn't have the media of what we have now, you would see it manifest itself in the way other places do. And so it's no wonder when Jesus looks at his followers, and he says this, I'm leaving you. And when I leave you, I'm leaving you someone better than me. It's greater than I, it's greater that I leave so that you get him. And they're like, what are you talking about? Where are you going? He's no. And hear me, this is why it wouldn't have been nothing unusual for them to grasp. He said, when I leave in the spirit realm will be one of us. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. And now you're not to be alone anymore. 
in that spirit realm. And every one of those men knew what it was like to be woken up from a dead sleep, overwhelmed with a sense of darkness just moving against me. Because in that realm, everything that's ever wrecked your ability to enjoy the night and wondered if 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 you're ever going to overcome the demons in your life there is in that spirit realm the holy spirit and he will come alongside you he will be your counselor he will be your defender he will be your advocate he will be there and it's better that i leave that in that spiritual realm will be the holy spirit they got it they understood it And so this Holy Spirit is moving, and Peter and John are now moving the temple, and all of a sudden they stop. The Holy Spirit directs them, look at that man, heal him. Why does he say Jesus Christ of Nazareth? I don't know, but a lot of other commentaries will say this. They said he's identifying with a place that really wasn't well-respected. It wasn't like a Nazareth was not a place where greatness came out of. As a matter of fact, remember Jesus said, um, and Jesus was talking and when the disciple, he called a disciple, the disciple walked up and said, Matt, what good comes out of Nazareth? And Jesus like, there's the first honest Jew I've met. You know, I mean, this, this was the interaction. This is almost them looking and saying, Jesus Christ of this place, meaning that identifies with how decrepit you feel, how decrepit that place is. Keep walking with me. If we would. Verse seven. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The reality is the only times you ever see wonder and amazement listed in the Bible is when they sense the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. The people are in awe. They don't know what to say. Keep in mind what was about to unfold here is a two-part message. Next week, we're going to see a lashing. The tongue lashing is about to begin. For every time you've ever watched the um, Passion of the Christ, you've watched a, an Easter presentation, and you've always gotten upset watching how people could have treated Jesus. Well, forever, the, uh, the speech you've always wanted to give, Peter's about to give it. He's about to give the speech, and he's about to come in strong. He's about to hit him right between the eyes. But then you're going to see next week how there is going to be an element of grace that's still blows our mind. So he walks up and, he, and they heal this man. Luke is writing this book. He's a doctor. He actually, when he says his, he was made good, made strong, he says his ankles, his feet were restored in perfect function. God's power taking over natural order and natural law. That's a miracle. The miracle, though, is that Peter would do this like he's doing. Keep in mind, Peter never wanted to pick a fight. You're picking a fight when you do this. A lame man in front of a temple, thousands of people gathered. If you don't think that's going to draw a crowd. I mean, this is, these are people that are, that are religiously in order going back and forth every day. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read. I'm going to hear. I'm going to study. I'm going. And all of a sudden they're confronted with this. How does a guy that's never walked in his life walk? Verse 1, chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus from the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them. 
put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And a number of the men came to about 5,000. 5,000 people come to belief in a courtyard where there is a picture of Peter and John and a lame man clinging to him. I forgot what verse that was. Verse 11. Go back. Um, let's go to verse 11. I, I skipped some stuff. Sorry. It says, while he clung, verse 11 of chapter 3. Could. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in a portico. This man is clinging and hanging on to Peter and John. If ever you want a picture of discipleship, there it is. This is why I'm not a big advocate of you do an event and you ask for a bunch of raised hands. And I'm not, not, I'm not blowing anybody's candle out to make ours brighter. But you watch a bunch of hands go up and then you leave and you brag about it the next week. 500 got saved. 800 got saved. In this case, 5,000 get saved. But all of them, can you imagine if we had a picture of them clinging on? The reality is Peter and John, were not, they were the only ones this man had ever trusted. He's clinging on to them. And people are shouting probably at him. Can you imagine the mass confusion? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on? Why would you do this? Why would you? And you yell at the man, are you sure you can walk? He said, of course I can walk. Where were you? Why? And he's probably yelling it back at, at rabbis and priests. We were telling him to sit back down. He's saying, no, I, I'm not going to sit down. As a matter of fact, why couldn't you do this? And this, this man is clinging to all the life he knows. The first people to ever give him dignity, much less the ability to walk. So he's clinging on. I, I sit there and I think about this, and I think about people that... Um, that can be really cruel when it comes to what we believe in. You think I stalk everybody on social media, by the way, to talk about it, right? But you read the notes, you read the comments and people write. I don't, like, how can people be so cruel? I see where somebody dies and, oh, yeah, he's a Christian and he was a servant in the church. And you also read people, you know, we're sorry to hear, we're sorry. And then inevitably some jerk slips in there. Well, he's, he always followed that worthless God. Now he's found out that it's not real. It's like, who does this? An evangelical atheist. I don't understand it. People that say, don't believe, you shouldn't believe, but you need to believe what I believe. I don't understand that methodology. And it's cruel. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it is something people only want to throw on us. You notice that. If this man listed that he was, you know, esteemed in his Buddhist church, nobody would have said anything. Just wouldn't have. But yet what happens? There's an attack. Oh, well, no, I speak the truth. I speak this is what I speak. I was in an airplane one time talking to a guy, and I'm like, what? You know, he just, I mean, he's just belligerent talking to this lady about, you know, her faith. He's like, well, you know, I don't believe, and neither should you. You're wasting your time. You just live your life for you. And, and I'm just like, oh, man, I'm boiling i'm boiling we get off the plane and 
almost on my sleep. What? Has something happened to you? And I can smell the liquor on his breath and he's, he's getting animated. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. And I'm just sitting there thinking, what is it? What is it about you? Like, what happened to you? Used to be a guy who sat outside of Idlewild a long time ago with a sign that said "God is fake" or something. Remember that guy? Yeah, a sign. Should we go out there and do everything? Every young person would take a bottle of water, coffee, donut. Nothing. He'd just come out with a worse sign the next week. And we sicked one of our current missionaries, Buff McNichol, one of our pastors, and went over and said, "Well, we're going to have dinner with him." And he went to dinner. Come to find out. Um, and he said, thanks for inviting me to dinner. I'll go. And they went to, I forgot the person's house. They went, went to that house. And finally, the question came up, why do you do this? Why do you hold signs outside of church that say God is a fraud? He because he is. He's fake. Can't believe in this. And all of a sudden, they get, get a little under the hood, and they realize something. After he starts opening up that his wife died of cancer. And this guy used to be a leader in his church. And all of a sudden, it became very evident that this man was still holding a grudge. He was wounded. You see, as much as Peter and John say, what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. So does darkness. When someone comes from darkness, this is why, if you ever wonder why you're confused or hurt or wounded, guess what? When someone comes to you in darkness and say, I, th- this is what they're saying, but they're not. I'm in a place of darkness. I'm in a place of confusion. And all I have, I give to you. And the way to combat that is the power and love of Christ. People would not be that cruel. Would you ever get up at a 9-11 memorial to say, no, you know, these firefighters were rushing upstairs to save people they couldn't even save. They ended up giving their lives. No, you wouldn't say that. They didn't know that. Well, you know what? I just speak the truth. No, you speak out of the darkness from which you know, which is to cause and inflict pain on other people. You and I are the antithesis of that. And what we have when we deal with people who are confused, who are hurting, who are angry, what you say is this. I tell you what, what I have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, what I have, I give to you. And we do that in everything we do. And guess what? We will fail miserably a lot a lot yesterday i'm coming home on drexel road and this guy cuts me i mean i'm telling this guy came in red sports car comes and i mean he's doing about 70 or 80 and flies there's nobody on my road he flies right in front of me inches in front of me and i'm i'm like so i did what any pastor do i followed him you know, and I followed him and he's in Lake Talia zooming around. He could see them following. And finally I, he goes this way. I'm like, All right, I go this way. And he's coming back around and I stop my car right in the middle of the car, right in the road. And I get out and I'm looking at him like, what are you doing? Like what, what, what possibly could have, and I'm thinking I'm about to see some punk. who has got his first car. This guy's my age, you know, and he gets out. And I mean, I, and I, and I'm thinking, you know, I know not to let it escalate, but I'm like, oh, so I, I take it from the de-escalating standpoint. I'm like, why would you do that? Like, you, if there was somebody older in a car didn't know how to handle it, you could have run them off the road. Why would you do that? What's going on? Because you were doing 40 and a 45. I'm like, 
No kidding. There's 10 bags of cow feed in my hybrid Camry. What do you think? I can't go very fast. And he goes, well, well, what we, you should have been going faster. I'm like, should I go? Okay, look, let's start all over. Why did you have to cut me off? Like, I'm just telling you, don't do that. And now I can smell them, you know, and he, and he starts this whole thing. And, and, and we, do you live in his neighborhood? You know, I'm like, no, I don't live in his neighborhood. And here's what, here's this amazing difference of me versus the Jake that went to jail five times for fighting. Ready? I looked at him like, you ain't worth it. And I get in my car and I'm like, and I just remember thinking how proud I am. I drove away. And I didn't say any choice words. Don't think I didn't want to. I wanted to. I wanted to engage with this guy fleshly. But guess what? God gave me the ability to walk away. Because what that guy is giving me is exactly all he knows. Misery. You know, this this guy's angry at life. And he's throwing it at me. And I'm thinking, man, I just wanted, but we don't always get what we want. There's a little confession. Nine o'clock service didn't get that story, but go back with me in verse, uh, um, verse 11. Okay. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together after them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And I'm sorry, I skipped these verses. I don't know why I did. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? And then now verse 13, watch how he speaks to him. He's speaking to him because they're Jews. They're going to get it. Remember, they always knew the Messiah was going to come in the title that's here. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So he unleashes on him. And he says, every one of you, he says even this, you teachers of the law, This is Peter, remember, who didn't want to heal on a Sabbath, is now chewing out a bunch of priests. You teachers of Israel, you teachers of the law, do you see what you've done here? Jesus could have been released, but what did you cry out for? Barabbas, you wanted a a murderer, and you got your murderer. You killed him. Now, what's interesting is you're watching Peter defend Jesus. Jesus would have probably stepped in like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, Peter, they didn't kill me. Because let's be very clear, no one killed Jesus. He gave up his life, and he said it is finished, and he let his life go. But Peter is perfect dichotomy. This is the perfect marriage of bumbling Peter, who's ready to cut someone's ear off at any minute, mixed with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Jake English on Drexel Road yesterday, going, bring it, because everything in me that's Oh, I would, you know, but guess what? I honestly thought of you guys. It'd be really embarrassing tomorrow. Jake can't preach today and his mugshot's up here. They've just been, and so what happens is I, I sit there and think, that's, that, why do I battle? Why do I go back and forth? Why do I feel this way? And why do I feel strong in this sense? That is the battle in which we live. That is who we are. And that is the beauty of the Holy Spirit that moves in us. 
But every one of us somehow graduate from thinking we never, ever need anything out of the spiritual realm. So what do we do? We fail. What do we do? We, I'm a failure. I must be a hypocrite. I'm, I, I'm not a real follower. No, you are. You're a person that Jesus loved so much that he knew everything about, and it came to, he came to save. He knows you. I wish I had time to get into next week's sermon. If you miss next, I'm never the guy who says come next week. Next week, don't miss next week. Next week is huge in this verse, in these scriptures. Because as much as a tongue lashing that goes on, as much as Peter is chewing him out, he stops. And it's like the Holy Spirit moves in him and gives a sermon of grace right in front of them all. I already read those verses in accident, but we'll read them again. Verse 4. Or I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. Why were they upset? They were not upset they healed the man. The Sadducees did not believe in the power of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, the Sadducees, um, they differ from the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the power of the resurrection. And I know we've heard this a joke, a joke, a joke. It's always a joke, but it's, it helped me remember it when I was a new Christian. The difference in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And why, how's a joke in? That's why they're sad, you see. Anyway, so, anyway, so for, for, for fear of telling a repeated joke. Um, Cameron's never heard it by his reaction, I can tell. But, but here... The Sadducees were upset because they were talking about a resurrection. It came in like, shut up, stop. And they arrest them, all three of them. Because who's clinging on? Who's hanging on? The lame man. He won't let go. He knows what goodness he has. But there's a boldness you and I can take from this. As much as I can't wait to get in the next verses to talk about the grace of God given in us, there is a boldness that God gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's up to you. That's your sermon. That's your moment. That's something I'm not aware of or the people that even sit around you in church. There's a boldness that God will give you. It's up to you. You know what I'm talking about. I don't, but you do. A certain boldness to do what you need to do to be the leader of your family to be the leader of a relationship, to be the leader at work, to be the one that comes along and says, this is what needs to be done, to be that person so emboldened with the boldness of Christ, to move in with the love, to give all that you have out of all the, to give all you have out of what you have. Imagine that. Imagine walking in and dealing with a person that bugs you and to understand and grapple and it, it, no longer grapple, but understand this person is giving you out of what they have. And you have the ability to give out of what you have. And the Holy Spirit is stronger because the Holy Spirit supersedes any natural order. And are you ready for this? Here it is. Best news you get here. The Holy Spirit supersedes anything in a spiritual realm that you're confronted with. Anything and anyone. And for any sense of confusion that's ever hit, any sense of argument, any sense of division, 
the power of the Holy Spirit should still give you hope. That he still heals. But are you prepared to be bold enough to present that? Here's a question. How many of you were either brought up, saved, or attended a Southern Baptist church at any point in your lifetime? How many of you? How many hands go up? We got all those hands. Okay. History lesson of the day. You thought you were getting away with it. Without it. Here it is. Ready? 1863. Army of Tennessee. The young private. Private Johnson is driven by the Holy Spirit to go speak to General Braxton Bragg, who was a very big deal in the Confederate Army. He was commanded the Army of Tennessee. 90,000 troops. He felt convicted to go tell the general about the Lord and share the gospel. He gets his Bible. It was given to him by the American Bible Society. He had it in his haversack. He walks up. There's a private. He says, I need to speak to the general. The private calls for an adjutant. One of the captains come out. He walks up and says, can I, can I help you? He says, I need to speak to the general. He says, is it, is it a matter of life and death? And he said, no, sir. And he went back to his tent and was denied. He goes back to his tent, and he couldn't sleep the entire night. It was during the winter and was one a lot of campaigns going on then. And he couldn't sleep. He was a wreck. The whole next day, he's just being wrenched out, couldn't eat, couldn't drink without knowing he had to go tell the general about this savior of his. And so eventually that night comes and he walks up back to the sentry, he goes to the sentry, says, may I see the general? They call for the same adjutant. Captain comes out and he, he approaches and he says, um, <clears throat> sir, son, I'm going to have to ask you again, is it a matter of life and death? Said, it absolutely is. He said, follow me. And it better be important. He walks them down the lane, lieutenants and colonels and majors and all have their tents lined. And there's the general's tent. This is not like an enlisted man's tent. This is a tent laid out with planks of wood and oil lamps and chairs and map, a map room. And he walks in and General Bragg, who had no people skills at all, was a very firm man. Nobody in Richmond could get along with him, and, but they just kept him in there because um, almost intimidated by him. And there is a private. And he said, Private so-and-so would like to address you regarding an urgent matter. The general looks and has the captain leave and says, sit down. He said the, the, the private would write in his memoirs that he, he focused entirely on a knot of wood in the pine floor. And he said, he said, I just looked at that knot of wood and I began sharing about Christ. And I began telling about who Jesus was in my life and how he saved me. And I'm offering this message of salvation for General Bragg. He said that I got none. He said, I was completely, I completely sweated out every ounce of fluid that I possibly had in my body. You could have ringed me out. He said, and I looked up in total fear for the general had not said one word. I looked up and his face was buried in his hands and he was crying. He said, I have heard that message and I've heard it preached before so many crowds, but nobody's ever told me. It's the first time I ever listened for me. And General Bragg, at that moment, received Christ. He then went on to bring in chaplains to preach to the ranks of the soldiers. It began a movement. 
It was a spring revival of 64 that spread through the ranks of the Confederate Army. It was said that when armies would, would go through towns before where there had been you know, a heavy amount of liquor consumed, the liquor consumption dropped. Church attendance was crazy. This phenomenon, the revival of 64, is still written about. It was an awakening, a revival. Conservative estimates. Eight out of 10 men that went into seminary for the next 10 years, and some will even say nine of the 10 men were saved in the ranks of the Confederate Great Revival of 64, which started the Southern Baptist Convention as we know it. The Southern Baptist Convention was at the time uh, under the shadow of Presbyterian, Methodist, and even Lutheran churches. To this day, any Southern seminary of all the all this five or six they have will point and tell you that the greatest movement that ever pushed that convention to be now the largest standing Protestant denomination in America is a Southern Baptist Convention started from a revival in 64, started by the conviction of a private from Tennessee who had no business walking into a general's tent, but walked in in a sense of boldness that said, out of what I have, I give everything, even against what will come against me, even what you'll think about me. And from that moment of boldness, all those hands that were raised in the air were impacted greatly by an obscure soldier whose books are not even written about anymore. Sometimes these acts of boldness are not rewarded with immediate consequence, and you need to know that. Sometimes the acts of boldness that we seek out are often for our own purposes. But I guess I, I pray that we have conviction that our acts of boldness will be done to reach people that we'll never meet again, to impact people that we'll never, ever know. If for all the times we've ever said, where will this country be in 50 years? Imagine if the people who have the power of the Holy Spirit at their side would just make a move in an act of boldness, one life at a time. We pray for a great church. We pray for a great country. We pray for a great society. But what would happen if you prayed that God would move in you in a spirit of boldness, depending on a spiritual realm and a Holy Spirit that still moves today as he did then, and the realization that you and I are in the class of 2020 of the greatest push of history this world has ever seen. Imagine that. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you.